1: So welcome to Face to Face, another edition. I have no idea what number this is going to turn out to be, but uh, we have a, a lovely guest with us today, Carly Suposnik, uh from the Alliance Against Modern Slavery. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us.
0: You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: So we're... Uh, Carly and I met a couple years ago, I think, at a, at a conference. I'm not even sure where, actually, now. Uh, we'd have to tease that out a little bit. But But the work that Carly does and her personality, in a way, don't add up. She's uh, got a great smile, she's fun to chat with, and yet here she is working uh, on some pretty serious issues. We just, before hitting the record button, we've been talking a little bit about her PhD she's working on uh, and her organization, which is the Alliance Against Modern Slavery. And if you want to check out the website, uh, even as you're listening, it's allianceagainstmodernslavery.org. It's the full uh, nine yards there. you got to spell it out. And uh, check out the website and find out some of the work that the organization is doing as we chat. But and I'm going to let uh, Carly tell you a little bit more about that. But it's a pretty pretty sensitive topic, a pretty important topic. A lot going on here, and I think you're going to probably be uh, surprised by some of the things you find out today. So again, Carly, thanks for joining us. And um, so tell tell us a little bit about the alliance and and maybe why there's such an organization in Canada.
0: Well, uh, we have three co-founders, myself and two others, and back in 2009. Two of us went to a conference in England, and at that time there was no organization in Canada that was nonpartisan and non-denominational doing work to combat slavery. We met Kevin Bales of Free the Slaves and others at the Wilberforce Institute for Studies on Slavery and Emancipation, and we were blown away. Hmm. Um, my colleague Jeff Gunn and I—we were studying historical anti-slavery. We were writing our. We had both written our master's theses on that topic. And here we were learning about contemporary slavery and the fact that there are 27 million people that we estimate are in slavery today, even though it has been legally abolished across our planet.
1: So here you are at a conference in England, having spent most of your time uh, looking at the history of slavery, not really Mm -hmm. aware of what's going on currently. And so when you say blown away, you mean, wow, it was kind of one of those holy smokes moments that I didn't have any idea that this was going
0: on? Absolutely. Um, I also, a year before that, had met a young woman who really changed my life. And her example is one of a forced marriage, which is one of the forms of modern-day slavery today, at the age of 14 years old. Wow. Her family, um, unfortunately, her mother had passed away giving birth to her younger brother. And after the civil war in Somalia, they had moved to Kenya. Her father remarried and they were really struggling. They needed food, they didn't, have good she- they didn't have good shelter, and so one of the strategies that was used in that case was to actually sell her in the form of a marriage. And so her stepmother was strongly encouraged this, and they pulled her out of school. They told her that she did not have a choice. She tried to run away. Unfortunately, her she was found. Her brother then beat her very badly to the point where she really could not no longer resist. And then the ceremony took place. The forced husband was 53 years old. She and was she was 14. 14, that's wow. correct. Um, and this is
1: in Canada? or This, this was, was in...
0: in... She was taken to Uganda. The ceremony occurred in Kenya. And we know this story because she eventually was able to get help from the United Nations headquarters in Kampala, Uganda, and one of our programs in Canada has a certain quota for individuals who have faced this type of torture. And she then came to Toronto and I met her at the Canadian Centre for Victims of Torture here in Toronto, Canada.
1: Wow. Yeah, see, I mean, it's so it's 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 sobering. I mean, it's sobering material to be talking about. It's the kind of thing that you know, and here have I have been doing this kind of work for many years in development and so on. And and when I hear stories like this, I say, "Really? Is this really a? Is it really going on in the world?" Always remarkable to hear stories like that. And then and then to to say that it's actually like there's a there's a center for torture here in Canada. You just kind of go, "Hang on, that's supposed to happen in other parts of the world, not here, mm-hmm. right?" It's 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 more than sobering. So is this. Um, so you met her before the alliance started as well? That's, That's right. Kind of, was that uh, the seed for you, would you say? It definitely was
0: the seed. Yeah. And I, again, as I mentioned, I was doing work on historical anti-slavery, sure. uh, which is this really interesting, I think, part of our history. We Most of the tools we use today in our human rights movements are connected to that first movement where you had the creation of boycotts and petitions and... Uh, large-scale movements with local committees. And and so for me, it was a really fascinating time in history. You also have the French Revolution in that period and uh, new ideas about freedom and equality and even the first feminist movement where women who were involved in anti-slavery started to ask themselves, well, hold on a second here. We're talking about liberty and equality and freedom, yet we don't have those things. Right. And and so um, it was shocking to me again because... In theory slavery has been legally abolished everywhere right. but then not only did i find out about this one case about a forced marriage and, and there was marriage trafficking involved because she was taken across um from from kenya to uganda um but i also discovered that human trafficking one of the other forms of modern-day slavery was was thriving here in canada as well and i quickly discovered that it wasn't just thriving in B.C. or on the East Coast, but it was also happening in my hometown and and actually literally in my backyard in Winnipeg. I had the chance to do some surveillance with the team in Manitoba. And my sister and I also, um, she joined us and and one of our colleagues with the Alliance. And we saw that um, young, young girls were being, they were being bought for sex and it was right next to my grandfather's house.
1: So there was a brothel next door. Is that they, kind of it? It was, was it? outside. Um, yeah.
0: So about twenty percent of sexual exploitation and sex trafficking of children and minors happens outdoors. So they were being picked up, hmm. um, and they were being um, they they were charging money, and then that money was then being given to their pimps. Or in one case, it was the father of the young girl. And, and for me, it was shocking, not only because that was, it was happening right on one of the main streets next to my grandfather's house, but it was happening in a lot larger numbers than I had ever thought as well. And the individuals who were purchasing the sex were not the individuals that you necessarily think of as bad people.
1: Right, right. Which I guess is typically when you uh, think of sex trafficking, you think of, uh, uh, I mean, in the last few years, there have been some films that have been made. Generally, these are not nice people or at least those are the images or you think of um you know uh criminals hardened criminals but so what you're saying is these are kind of regular folk in a way is that
0: regular folk yeah um in on average it tends to be men who have some disposable income that's the only thing that they have Hmm. in common um and they can be teachers they can be lawyers they can be doctors um, of all ethnicities and cultures. Uh, in other cases, we have seen women as well. One of the first charges in Manitoba was w- of a woman who was operating out of a shelter, who was using that position of power to take advantage of of young, vulnerable, at-risk youth.
1: So, how? I mean, my I'm all over the place right now. I've got about 32 different questions I want to ask you. But tell how do you? So you've studied slavery from a from a historical perspective. We kind of know the you know, what that means. Mm-hmm. It's African, it's, it's, uh, it's about rubber plantations, it's about coffee, it's about all these things. It's about bringing slaves into the, uh, the West and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you define modern slavery? Uh, so, you know, and let me just toss this out here too, Carly. Just this week, somebody sent me an email mm-hmm. that had one of those PowerPoint presentations to it that says, hey, we live in a better world than we used to. And one of the slides says there's less, you know, less slavery today than there was 10 years ago. I don't know if that's true, and I'm I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that. So there's about three questions in there.
0: Uh, I'll tackle the first one first. When it comes to defining slavery, we adhere to a sociological definition that's advanced by Kevin Bales. And so for it to count as slavery, you need three things. First of all, someone who is forced to work without any pay. Okay. So here I'm not talking about... Wage slavery, or even someone who's earning as little as a dollar or two dollars a day. So
1: we're not talking about a sweatshop at this point, no, necessarily, not
0: necessarily. Okay. So if someone who is forced to work without any pay. Second thing is they're under the threat or the use of violence. That threat piece is really important because when we talk to survivors here in Canada, uh, for instance, there is a big Hungarian case recently, a forced labor case in Hamilton, Ontario. In a suburban neighborhood where 19 men who came over from Hungary who were promised work in the construction industry were then forced to work 18-hour days. They weren't paid at all. And um, the reason why many of them explained later on um, th- what held them in there was the fact that there were threats being made by the traffickers back home against their loved mm. ones saying, mm. oh, it would be a shame something were to happen to your daughter, right, to your wife. Right, right. And so often that threat of the violence is what is even more powerful than the violence itself that could right, be perpetrated sure, against someone. Sure, so sure. you've got forced work without any pay, second thing under the threat of use of violence, and the third thing is unable to walk away. Hmm. Um, whether it's a language issue or a safety issue, whatever it might be, those are the three things that we see for it to count as a case of slavery. And under that definition, the global estimate is about 27 million people. Um, the major myth, I think, in Canada right now is that... 27
1: million people. What's Canada's population? 30. Canada.
0: So it's about the size of our population in Canada in the early 1990s. Yeah. So if you want a picture Canada, that, that's it's somewhat we're accurate. is that wild? We're
1: all slaves.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. and, and one of the big myths here, though, is that we have 27 million human trafficking victims. Um, but human trafficking represents only about 20% of that total of modern sites today, the largest form still remains debt bondage. And we have about 10 million people alone in India who are in what we call debt bondage.
1: Right. So can you give me the, the, I was going to say the Coles Notes version, I just dated myself. Um, Debt bondage is... uh, So
0: we typically, it's a scenario where, um, I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a, a family in India where Unfortunately, the, the father, he gets ill, and the mother is trying to do her best to feed the family but just doesn't have the income to support them. She needs to pay for medication. And then you have the, the moneylender in the town or the village, wherever it might be, who will agree to give her a loan. But then he'll say, in some cases, first of all, there's going to be huge amounts of interest. But then the key thing, in some cases, is that he will give her the loan if he then can own her. Right. Right. And the problem with that is how can you ever repay someone if they own you? Right. And unfortunately, what we see is entire villages are in this situation where the debt is also inherited because it could be as little as $20 Canadian, but they can never repay that. And right. it, the interest right. keeps accruing and then the father and mother pass on and then their children inherit that and then their grandchildren and so on. So, how, so
1: So number three for you in the definition, no pay, threat of violence, and you can't walk. How do you ultimately walk away? And I don't mean maybe necessarily the individuals, but I guess the question is, how do you break this chain of violence? And, and sorry for the, 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 the metaphor, but how does it get any better? It sounds like it's actually getting worse. You know, I mean, it sounds like it's becoming more refined almost in a way. And, you know, is this one of the downsides of globalization? You know, or, or is there an upside to this? Because we can tweet about this now. We can we can have conferences about this and so on. So maybe that's an upside to it. But I guess right now I'm just hearing, mm-hmm. wow, this is way maybe worse than I thought. And I think that most of our listeners will have heard of before. How uh, how do you start to break the, the 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 chain?
0: I think, as you said, the tweeting and education piece is essential. Um, both here and in that small village in India. Right. So we, we've got, in in Canada, it's really important that all of us start to ask, well, where is that T-shirt I'm wearing coming from? Or if it's if it's something else, even a rug, for example. Because we're all connected through globalization, as you mentioned, and, and slavery is what Hillary Clinton has called the dark underbelly of globalization. Right, right. Um, where it comes really, where education also is key is, is, as I said, within that village itself. And so there are groups that... Now, are working with. We're really against um, working for. We, we really believe in collaboration and a grassroots model. And we see entire villages once once they're given that knowledge that this is illegal, come together not on their own but together as a unit. And then they are facing the moneylenders and the authorities. And great organizations like Free the Slaves are, are doing this work. And then now whole villages are in freedom. And it's not that expensive either. That's a lot of people mm-hmm. think well. This is, this is so huge in terms of the scale and scope. Um, but financially speaking, on average for one family in India, it costs about $800 for counseling, rehabilitation, and, and, and job training so that these individuals are not going to be re-enslaved or vulnerable.
1: Do you think that a lot of these uh, uh, people who are holding other people in bondage, the Hamilton example... You know the threats of oh, wouldn't it be a shame if your daughter or wife? Do you think they actually really would follow through? Are they are they that violent, or or, or is there a small portion of the of of the population that would actually succumb to that kind of uh, immoral kind of behavior, crimes? Frank.
0: Well, um, it's hard to say. I yeah. think it really depends on the individual. But we have certainly seen quite a bit of violence, especially within the sex trafficking cases. Mm-hmm. And in the Hamilton case, there were even um, death threats made against some of the service providers, some of our politicians in Canada, and a headhunter was even hired to to kill some of them. So I I, I think we should take those threats seriously, yeah. and and that risk goes. No,
1: it just makes me wonder. You know, kind of more bark than they are bite. Does that make sense? I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it, I just wonder if it's if it's a threat that uh, and and you know, having not ever sat in that kind of a situation, you know, other than maybe being. A, bullied a little bit as a kid, you know, you, you can't really, uh, uh, I guess, imagine the, the impact that that kind of threat, you're far away from home, you're not mm-hmm. getting paid any money, there's no, you've essentially got no freedom. Who do you go to, right? You don't speak the language and so on. And it's hard to uh, imagine these kinds of issues without actually kind of walking in somebody else's shoes. Um, mm-hmm. So is that what the Alliance is, is, is there for? Is it all about education then for you guys?
0: That's one of the pieces. We, our mission is four-pronged. It's to research, to educate, and to aid in partnership in our local and global communities. So about 50% of our work is local and 50% of our work is global. And we, we think that's really key. Um, the research that we do informs the education and the aid and our partnerships also in turn inform what we research that then goes back and informs the education and the aid.
1: Uh, one of the greatest books I've read, uh, period, is a book called King Leopold's Ghost. And I don't—I know a little bit about uh, the history of slavery and so on. And uh, it's a book that my brother recommended I read. Oh, you got to read it; it's amazing, et cetera, et cetera. I finished it in a in a few days, actually. I mean, it, it reads like a, an incredible piece of fiction. Like uh, uh, Adam Hoschild is the writer. And if you haven't read it out there, you really do need to pick it up. And it's essentially an extension of uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. It's got connections, obviously, to the film Apocalypse Now and so on. So that was slavery then, this idea that that we actually were kidnapping people from their uh, homeland and bringing them elsewhere to make them work for either nothing or next to nothing. Is that
0: still going on? It is going on in certain places. We still have what you would think of as traditional slavery, um, for example, in Mali, Africa, we, it's hereditary in that case, but we still see um, individuals working on plantations, whether or a cotton field. Um, and in, in in that case, we have about eight hundred thousand people in the north of Mali, hmm. which is about the size of Winnipeg for people to picture. Right. And and their the status is inherited, so you're born into it, and your your children are taken away from you at early ages. They're often forced into marriages. And um, in some cases, it, it's entirely um, based on, on racial discrimination. The Tamashek language there in the north of Mali, um, the words black and slave are actually synonymous, which wow. I think tells you a lot about some of the legacies lot. there. But in other cases, slavery has evolved and, and it, it's, it looks very different than it used to. And, and so that's where I think a lot of the movement now is focusing on human trafficking, which takes the form of... Uh, what may look like to outsiders in some cases as prostitution right um, or or in some other cases, as I mentioned, it can involve a marriage and it may look like an arranged marriage to an outsider um, but if individuals aren't able to give their free and full consent then that that's not what you would call an arranged marriage.
1: So, so to, to just rewind a little bit to that, that PowerPoint presentation of, mm-hmm. you know, what a better world we live in today. Uh, it was very much seen through a Western set of eyes. You know, when, when you look at all the wonderful things that have happened mm-hmm. that this, you know, friend of mine sent me this uh, presentation, you know, slavery is not as bad as it used to be. Is that, do you think what they're, Talking about that classical definition of chaining somebody to the the bottom of a boat and they're they're rowing you home is that is that mm-hmm. why th- whoever created this PowerPoint can say that?
0: I, in a way, um, in terms of the numbers, we they they are probably right. We if you look at even ancient Greece, about fifty percent of the population was enslaved. Right. Today, if we're estimating, and again, these estimates are in some cases very conservative because of the nature of slavery. Um, the fact that it's no longer illegal, everything's covert. So it makes it very difficult for, for researchers to estimate yeah, this. Yeah. But if you take 27 million out of our population of over 7 billion, that, that works out to being 0.03%, right.
1: um,
0: which is substantially less than ever before in our history. And right, and, right. and so on. if, if we look based, just purely based on, on the, the numbers, then your, your friend is right, probably.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, so I just recently got home from Cambodia. I spent a couple of weeks there, and, and I'm doing a lot more research on the country itself and seeing where it's heading economically. And it looks like they're on the edge of discovering quite a few resources, minerals. They've discovered oil off the coast of Sahanauicville. And, of course, there's probably a battle that's going to go on about who owns that and in the South China Sea and who's going to pick it up corporately, et cetera. Will it actually benefit just a small group of people or the country itself? And then there's all kinds of, uh, it seems, extractive Companies are slowly coming in, but the whole land right thing is a real problem, et cetera. So, there's probably gold there, there's probably copper, there's, you know, know, maybe we're on the edge. So, I'm talking to my son about this and very fun, interesting, cute conversation. He's seven years old and he thinks we should go and open up a mine in Cambodia. And so, we talked uh, just recently on the weekend and he made some comment about how we'll probably need some really good shovels you know, which is just <laughs> hysterical, right? Yeah. That we're just going to dig this small hole and actually find gold and not really realizing multi-billion dollar industry that we're talking about. Anyway, I thought something he said was really interesting and I did not prompt him at all. We were talking about exploitation and about how, and I've just made, I've commented a little bit about uh, in the mining industry, this can happen and so on. And, And he came back with, well, what he thought would be a good idea was whoever discovered the gold would get 50% of it. And then the 50% would go to the the company that was kind of, you know, this is a seven-year-old's understanding of capitalism. He probably has a better (laughs) understanding than I do, actually. But I thought it was really interesting, you know, and and I want to connect it to, do we lose that somewhere along the way? I mean, do you think that slavery, today modern slavery, is connected somehow to this Dare I say it, exploitative nature behind capitalism. This idea that I want to benefit at your expense. So you've got your sweatshops, you have your anti living wage, not your living wage. And so you have a roof collapse in Bangladesh, and I put my Quicksilver shirt on in the morning, I put my Joe Fresh clothing on. I don't give a rat's ass about Bangladesh, really, because I continue to, 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 I guess, feed into this industry. And yet at the same time, you interview a lot of those people in Bangladesh, they don't want to give that job up. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, I'm talking out loud, but I think there's a few questions embedded here. How is it that my son at seven can be so generous Mm -hmm. and in about 10 years' time maybe be running a small little uh, backyard business exploiting his friends, mm-hmm. and then in another ten years, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the financial industry making tons of money. And not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that intrinsically, but I think there's something connected there because uh, I, w- I want to ask that question: How does somebody exploit another human being in such mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. horrific kind of a way? Sorry, I, I, I'm that, bab- that's no, that's a great bit. question.
0: Um, there's a huge debate in the literature right now on on that very thing, whether or not. Um, there is this explicit link to capitalism, and and there is this one, uh, this one famous man named Eric Williams wrote a book called Slavery and Capitalism, which suggested just that that was the piece of secret for it that with the rise of capitalism that we see an increased amount of slavery and and through that 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 connection um, that that's what has motivated even um, the work of humanitarian groups. However. Um, it seems that he, his theory, while it's attractive and there are some great points, um, it doesn't explain the anti-slavery movement at all. Right. Um, and, and so you have... Because
1: um, it's coming out of the same culture.
0: Same culture. Um, Eric Williams, was he was actually um, in Trinidad and Tobago, and he um, didn't take into, the, into account the fact that in, in that period, in the late 18th, early 19th century, slavery was equivalent to the car industry if you will okay and so when the first group of anti-slavery um, campaigners put forward their call to legally abolish it um, they were looked at it as if they were crazy you know nine out of ten people thought they were nuts yeah and but um, the British actually invested a huge percentage of their 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 budget on on a national level over years to actually ensure that ships carrying slaves were going to be taken off the oceans and and you see that within 20 years people who are motivated more by humanitarian rationales and and by justice and these probably would have been
1: capitalists of the time and socialists of the time and religious folk Mm -hmm. and non-religious folk Mm -hmm. it would have been groups of all sort of, uh, or people from all different groups.
0: Right, yeah, so, yeah. so you, you, on one level you see that there is this, this certain link between slavery and capitalism, but then you also see that the movements that have ensured the abolition and um, now what we see the decline, hopefully, in slavery are not at all motivated by that. So where does
1: the moral fiber come from then? So where does the moral fiber come from for somebody to say, uh, this is unacceptable and I want to see this change? You know, in, in King Leopold's mm-hmm. Ghost, I tell the story when I speak publicly often about Edmund Dean Morrill. The guy who saw the ships coming into um, Antwerp in in Belgium loaded with slaves and rubber and coffee and resources, essentially, and going out with soldiers and guns and so Mm -hmm. on to to, uh, the Congo. Hey, something doesn't add up here, says Edmund. And he ends up becoming one of the first human rights activists, Mm -hmm. I mean, that we know of, started the Congo Reform Association and the list goes on what this guy did. Mm -hmm. So why him and not somebody else? You know?
0: Usually the tipping point for most people is when they have a personal experience. Okay. So someone like, uh, if you look at there's a famous song, "Amazing Grace." That was yeah, written by yeah. former slave ship captain John Newton. Yeah. and so most people they think of that as a song about hope. But the lyrics, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. They also refer to to his views and how they changed about the slave trade. He had he transshipped about twenty thousand Africans from Sierra Leone at the time, um, and then later in life realized that what he had done is wrong. And so he having um, had these personal experiences and in witnessing the way that these individuals were treated could no longer just look the other way. And I think for most people today in Canada, we, we have a sense of, oh, you know, some of these things that we're buying, you know, when we go at a dollar store or right, at the grocery right. store, how is it that we can possibly pay so little for this? But we don't necessarily want to think a step further because that makes us uncomfortable and then that may mean that we will have to change something. Right, right. And, and so I think making sure that people can have that experience, a personal one, on some level, is really key.
1: So do you want people to stop shopping at dollar stores, or do you want people to think about what they're doing when they're shopping at a dollar store? Is that better?
0: We want people to think about what they're doing when they're shopping. And also... Whenever possible to do what we call boycotting. So let's say you're already in public or you're at a friend's place and they've already made a great dinner and dessert. Um at that point, you know, you're not gonna not eat the chocolate in, in whatever, maybe it's like a chocolate it's cake. Because it's not <laughs> slavery-free, right? But if you're the one at the shopping store or at the dollar store, um, make an informed decision and and you know, do your research. There are some great sites. Uh we work with, one of our partners is called Taco Soul. And they're based here in Toronto, and their chocolate is slavery-free. We, they know exactly where the cocoa beans are coming from. Uh, but there are a number of other options that you can choose from for many products, including your laptop, your cell phone, yeah. Um, yeah. just basic fruits and vegetables as well. And, and so we don't, we're not saying completely end it, but whenever you can, think about where it's coming from and make that, op- make that choice that is more ethical and more moral.
1: Ask, ask, some, ask some questions. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And send send our corporations a message that we're not going to tolerate um, cutting corners. So, uh, for example, Cadbury now has a chocolate bar. They have one that's fair trade, the milk chocolate bar. Well, and
1: I mean, I just saw on the weekend, Tim Hortons is now advertising not fair trade coffee, but at least... You know, equitable trade—I suppose they would call it. They would call it. You know, and and it's a big, it's a big advertising campaign. You can buy this now at Tim Hortons. Article mm-hmm. in the Globe on Saturday about Cambodian uh, living wage and young women and how a lot of them are younger than fifteen year old, fifteen years old. Front page of the Globe and w- Mail. I mean, ten years ago, we probably wouldn't have been having this discussion in the news media. I mean, you would have seen it here and there but not uh i don't think to the degree that it's going on today. So in that sense would you say you're hopeful?
0: I am hopeful. Yeah. I I think even just 5 years ago when we used to tell people about slavery they looked at us like we were crazy. Right. And right. now 5 years later they they're saying, "Oh, you know I saw this movie and I saw I read this book um And and so the awareness is growing, and I think similar to the MAD campaign when it comes to drinking and driving, when it was first launched, a lot of people thought that, you know, this was kind of silly, we don't need this, And, and then they started to hear more and more about, oh, well, this person's friend or this person's family member was killed through drunk driving. And then that personal connection and that, that realization, that, that epiphany that, wait a second, no, this is absolutely wrong. We need to do something about it, came to the fore. And so we're now starting to hear more and more about cases. I, I, having met parents of, of children who have been trafficked here domestically, and, and by the way, 70% of the cases approximately in Canada of trafficking are involving our own domestic citizens. Wow. Um, having met those those survivors and also their parents and loved ones or friends of these individuals, it is personal and it is real and it shows that we're all vulnerable and we need to actually ask ourselves if we're willing to tolerate this happening in our communities. If our our friends or if it's your grandchildren or your children or whoever it might be are, are vulnerable, are we really free as a society?
1: Well, it raises interesting questions, you know, about enslavement as a whole. I mean, you talk about sex trafficking, you talk about other things. I mean, are we addicted to, are we slaves ourselves? What are we slaves ourselves to if you want to ask actually more difficult, almost in a way philosophical questions that still have a practical implication? Uh, You know, am I a slave to the dollar store? You know, I mean, it sounds absurd when you're talking about somebody who is afraid for their mm-hmm. daughter's life, for their wife's mm-hmm. life, different kind of slavery. It's almost disrespectful to use the same word. But are we so dependent on that cheap mm-hmm. Joe fresh purchase that we're not willing to really look at the, the, the deeper issues? Um, I have to say, you know, uh, you know, even with respect to the, the Bangladesh uh, Bangladeshi uh, uh, disaster recently and how many deaths and so on. It's global outrage, etc. I, I believe Joe Fresh is now uh, looking at the way they're going to be doing their, la- uh, their, mm-hmm. their labor hiring and their labor mm-hmm. practices and the factories they're going after. Quite a few labels and brands have said that they're not going to change anything, but a couple have. And I think you got to believe on some level that's a step forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we could probably be farther along as a culture and as a society, but uh, it's... Mm-hmm. It's a good sign, isn't
0: it? I think so. And, yeah. and we we have really the blessing to work with students and and university uh, level students as well, um, and who are doing these things, who are starting campaigns. And I think slowly this is this awareness is building, and and companies are actually starting to, in a way, be frightened, and, and they're starting to look at their corporate social responsibility more seriously. And in, in other cases, in the states, there are now even websites that are coming up and giving them rankings. And and so they're they're starting to get their acts more together, and I think it's only going to continue if we keep voicing our 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 desire to be able to buy goods that are saved. There's some, free. there's
1: something there that's unsettling to me. You know, they're you said they're frightened. They're frightened because they're going to make less money, right? And that's a bit disturbing. Mm-hmm. So we're back to the whole capitalistic kind of mm-hmm. approach. You mm-hmm. know, the Milton Friedman notion that. But is it the sole responsibility of a corporation mm-hmm. is to increase profits, period?
0: Yeah, and, and you, you, know, you, you have know? some people who ha- I think rightly have suggested that the modern world was built on the back of slavery. Right, right. And now we're facing a choice where we need to decide, are we going to let that continue?
1: Do you think that, so, do you think that, that uh, slaves of the past cultures, uh, uh, First Nations communities, uh, black folk from around the world, mm-hmm. is their time over? Like, you know, you you sort of hear people saying, oh, for crying out loud, do I really need, do we really need to hear about that again? I mean, get over it, will Mm -hmm. you? And I I personally get kind of frustrated with that, and that's an understatement, depending on the setting I'm in. But do you think there's some truth to that? Uh, Do you think there's some value in that, that uh, instead of feeling sorry for yourself, you know, you should, Mm -hmm. you know, start working on some other issue or someone, how how do you feel about that?
0: I find that really frustrating, that attitude. I think... What we need to understand, and here my bias is I'm a historian, so I think we need to understand the connections between past and present. And if we take the example of African Canadians or our First Nations people here, um, we tend to forget that even um, in the New France period, for example, um, when we, ha- we, do have, we have data about slavery, even back then here in Canada, mm. and about two thirds of the slaves actually at that point were First Nation and one-third was African-Canadian. And you look today at our percentages, and we're estimating now that when it comes to the cases we see in Canada, which by and large are human trafficking cases, and and most of which that we know about are sex trafficking cases, about two-thirds of those are involving our Indigenous people. So over the course of hundreds of years... The same community that's vulnerable has remained the same. If you look at the United States, where their huge community that was most vulnerable to slavery and that was trans from Africa, the African population in the States today, when it comes to human trafficking, that's the largest group that's vulnerable. So I think it, it, it's, it's problematic because we are we have these communities that are vulnerable, and it's a structural vulnerability that hasn't changed, and then we're blaming them because they're still vulnerable. Right, right. Right. And and also the individuals who are perpetrating the slavery um, are also in some cases remaining the same. Um, the most most of the time, people assume that the individuals who, when it comes to sex trafficking, are supplying the demand for that are are probably from these from the communities perhaps of the individuals who are vulnerable. But that's not the case. They tend to be, as I mentioned. Particularly men who have some disposable income, right. and and in many cases you see them coming in from suburbs into the core areas, and 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 often they are white. And so I think we need to start to to question um, that aspect of this.
1: I remember going to Cambodia for the first time with uh, Elizabeth, and we landed in Siem Reap, which is where Angkor Wat and you know all the temples are, and so on in the kind of northwestern part of Cambodia. And one of the first things we saw getting, in fact, the first thing I think I saw that uh, I remember was a massive billboard. And I've spoken about this in my classes, and I've written about it, and I've probably spoken about it on another podcast, but a pair of white hands and handcuffs. And the tagline was, remember, sex with a child is a crime. <laughs> I just, mm-hmm. I looked at Elizabeth, I go, do you really need to tell somebody that? Do you really need to remind somebody that? Now, I have found out since, having traveled there now for about 10 years and spent a lot of time working there, a lot of the criminals, the sexual criminals, are not white. a lot of them are Cambodian, a lot of them mm-hmm. are Thai, a lot of them are Chinese you know mm-hmm. so this is not necessarily a white western thing this is This is a problem globally
0: absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and for the listeners, um, one thing that you hopefully will be happy to hear about is we now have bill c three ten that was passed recently, which extends the long arm of our law to Canadians when they are going abroad. So in the past we've had we've known about sexual exploitation happening to minors in places like Cambodia that is perpetrated by Canadians who go abroad and and it's for the purpose of sex tourism and we didn't have any way to hold them accountable. But now we do.
1: And wasn't there somebody convicted about a year and a half ago out west Vancouver
0: that's right. Yes, yeah. um, and, and it in, was
1: Cambodia too, wasn't it?
0: I think it was involving Cambodia, and then recently there was a case. I'm forgetting his name, but there was a man who had been going to Cuba and over 30 visits, and they were able to charge him now with child exploitation.
1: So things are changing. Why? Why do you care? And why the hell should I care?
0: Hmm. Um, I care because growing up, I I saw what how slavery can really impact um, people on an individual level in my family, in my community. Um, my grandparents on my dad's side are both survivors of slavery mm. and just the fears that they had of trusting people and the way in which they were treated. Um, it just, it's always, it's always with me and I, I feel a responsibility. And I truly believe that when we talk about never again, right. that that, that means action and, and why we should do it, and why we should care, um, because, again, it, it, I've through the individuals that I've met and the experiences that I've had, I, I really think that, ex- that there's this proverb that says, you save one life, you save the world entire. And so the, the young woman I mentioned who was 14 when she was forced to marry, um, I've had the chance to, to know her over the past years, and she's now in freedom, she now has a family of her own, she's able to dream. And and for me, that's why I do it. And I, I think people—the reason why you want to do it—is because by giving and by focusing on others, you get something in return as well. And I think our freedom is collective. If one of us, if one of us is not in freedom, and in, in a way, we're not—none of us are in freedom. And so Desmond Tutu, he has—he he talks about um, a number of things, and he he often says, though, so do your little bit of good where you are, and it's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world mm, I'm, I'm a strong great. believer in that yeah. um and and also so
1: you believe in uh, incremental change you, you believe in the little things
0: i do and one of uh, the studies i saw recently about um how to um, best even fundraise or to do to have an impact is found uh, an interesting uh, result they found that if you can have let's say a thousand people give ten dollars a month Mm. On, on a steady basis, that, that that can do amazing things for not-for-profits. I was
1: with a, a major fundraising firm on Friday just three days ago, and that's exactly what they said. That's, you you want to get those high net worth donors that are going to write you those $100,000 checks once a year, but what you really want to do is somehow engage that group that can donate 50 bucks a year but increase the numbers. You know? mm-hmm. So create those monthly donors, those, those people that are a little, maybe a little more engaged. Yeah. Um, So again, for you, it was a personal connection that drew you in. Is that why you're a historian?
0: Um, I think so. Um, I think we have, again, I I feel a responsibility to learn from the past in order to inform the present. And even here in Canada, in terms of our strategy to combat human trafficking and slavery, I think we can't neglect to look at the historical antecedents and, as I mentioned, the structural vulnerability that we see, especially impacting our Aboriginal and, and our African Canadian communities.
1: So we're pretty close to, to wrapping up and, and I you know I want you to just maybe before we wrap up mm-hmm. chat a little bit more about the alliance and what's coming next and what you're excited about and so on. You were telling me about some some things happening. Um, and often these types of chats and articles end with hey, here's what you can do. Well what can I do? What, what mm-hmm. can somebody do if, if they don't have the personal connection? yet, Um, how might they get involved?
0: I think um, each of us has a voice. And raising that voice can be incredibly powerful. And so first thing, though, is to get educated. Um, You can go to our website, slavery.org. There are some wonderful books that have come out that that go through how this is happening in Canada, where it's happening, and why. And you can also send us an email. Um, But I think the key thing is that education piece, but then doing something. And each of us has a gift. So whether you're a writer, whether you are a photographer, whether you're a musician, whatever your skill might be, I think use it. Um, even um, telling 10 people about this is key. Um, and then the most tragic thing I think that I hear every day is that People say, Carly, I can't do something big, so I'm just not going to do anything. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and that...
1: And, and I, too. I, it frustrates the heck out of me. That breaks yeah. my heart.
0: So I think, you know, it could be... Um, of course, you know, fundraising is always really helpful, but the awareness piece is huge. So whether it's, you know, watch a movie together about the topic with some of your colleagues or friends or, um, you know, hold some kind of event where if you're a teacher, you know, get some students together... Whatever it might be, um, I think we don't want to limit anybody, um, but for us, it's we, we suggest education. We suggest then getting involved, and across Canada right now, there are frontline groups that are really in need of volunteers. We have some that are working directly with victims, others who are going into schools, and, and others who are doing advocacy work, because in order to change things we we need to raise awareness it's at about five percent right now in canada which is pretty low that's pretty low um and once we raise awareness then we can get the commitment of our leaders and then once we have that that's when we can get the funding that we need to to truly combat this
1: so uh that's great thank you very helpful how uh tell me a little bit about the alliance as we wrap up and what and what's next for you guys
0: Well, we're really excited. We have set our date for our fourth annual conference, which brings together our frontline heroes, including law enforcement and survivors and NGOs, as well as researchers. And that's going to be on February 22nd, 2014, here in Toronto. We've also got a grant from the Ontario Trillium Foundation to do some research and training across the province. The next two stops for that will be in Thunder Bay and also in Windsor. And um, I think uh, other than that, go to our website, check things out. One of our partners is Learning for Hope, which is a group that does work in Cusco, Peru. And we're really excited to be supporting their work there. And they've we've now opened a vocational center for survivors of sex trafficking in Cusco, which is a big spot That's for great. sex tourism. And also, as most people know, very close to Machu Picchu, a beautiful site.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. I, uh, I'll say it again. Uh, those who, who have been listening uh, for the last few months as face to face continues to grow, I feel like we've just barely even begun. So hopefully we'll be able to have another conversation down the road. Thanks for uh, educating me. Thanks for bringing our listeners up to speed. Oh, and the newsletter. There's a newsletter out right there. Uh, go to the website, Alliance Against Modern Slavery. Org. I think that's about the sixth time we've pushed, the, pushed this website. Sign up for the newsletter. Uh, I get it. You won't get too many, and you'll get a little bit of an update of, of where things are, and frankly, um, and more hopefully, where things can ultimately be. So thanks, Carly, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks so much, David.